Do we have good reasons for believing that Jesus actually did raise from the dead on the first Easter Sunday? Find out today as we explore nine reasons why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. Listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. from the Bellator Christie Studios uh, as we're uh, here on Good Friday uh, 2018 and so we hope that you are uh, having a wonderful day wherever you may be Uh, still getting this is actually the first time uh, that I am uh, using the mixer uh, completely informed so still getting adjusted uh, on how to uh, get all of this working and getting the sound right as we uh, as I blend uh, the mixer itself in with the theme music so if I sounded a little muffled uh, first uh, as we first started this that's the reason why but again we are uh, I hope you're doing well wherever you may be and we thank you again for joining us on the podcast today. I do uh, want to start off by saying that uh, uh, the Bellator Christie podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com, and uh, we do encourage you to go check out the website, uh, and by, while you're there, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And uh, by doing so, you'll receive all the articles and links to the podcasts as they become available in your inbox. And the best thing is, is it's absolutely free. So we encourage you to do that. You can also take uh, the Bellator Christie podcast with you on the go, wherever you may be, uh, by subscribing uh, to the podcast. We're on several different apps. We're on TuneIn, Stitcher. Uh, iTunes as well as Google Play. Uh, so again, we do encourage you to do that. Do have a, a lot of uh, interesting interviews, uh, wonderful interviews coming up uh, here in the next few weeks. Looking forward to getting that ready, and uh, hopefully we'll have that uh, ready to go here before too very much, uh, too very too long. And so we will have Dr. Gary Yates with us here in a few weeks. Uh, he'll be talking about his commentary on the Book of Jeremiah. Hope to have that released here in a few weeks, and uh, also. Um, uh, Jason Oaks, I believe is uh, I believe I have his name right up. I do anyhow. Uh, we're going to work on getting him on the podcast here very soon, as he has written a book on uh, kingdom of, uh, on the cults, and so we'll try to have him on the show here uh, before too long as well. Again, today on our podcast, we're going to look at nine reasons why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and uh, well, first of all, start off before. I give you my nine reasons. I want to give you a take by Sean McDowell. He has a wonderful video I want to share with you uh, here right now. And he's going to share uh, some information with you on why he believes in the resurrection. Uh, See if I can get this pulled up for you right now. And then we will, uh, I'll give you my nine reasons uh, why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So let's get this pulled up. This is Sean McDowell. And so we'll hear from him and then I'll come back and I'll give you the reasons uh, why I believe in the resurrection on this special Easter-focused podcast here on the Bellator Christie Podcast. What is the evidence Jesus rose from the dead? Can we have any confidence in an event 2,000 years ago? Well, let me lay out some quick 
facts that we know and why the resurrection of Jesus best accounts for these. Number one, we know that Jesus died on the cross. There's essentially no scholarly debate about this. How can I make such a claim? Well, number one, it's all over the New Testament in a number of different writers. Number two, we have extra biblical Christian writers in the end of the first century, early and early second century, people like Ignatius and Clement of Rome. And then we have non-Christian writers, Romans like Tacitus, early second century, Jews like Josephus at the end of the first century. And not to mention the Christians wouldn't make up that their Messiah was crucified because it meant on its surface that that person was shamed in a sense by God. So we know Jesus died on the cross. Well, how do we know the tomb was empty? Well, a few reasons. Number one, have you ever noticed the tomb was discovered by women? Now, in that culture, a woman's testimony in most circumstances was considered worthless. They didn't, a woman was not educated in the sense like a man was. So why would the apostles invent that women discovered the empty tomb unless it were really true? But second, if you read in the Gospels, you know what it says? The religious leaders, when they're trying to discount the resurrection, one thing they say is the disciples came and stole the body. Now, I don't believe the disciples stole the body, but why would the religious leaders make that up? Because the body was gone and the tomb was empty. So Jesus died, the tomb is empty, and third, we have appearances of Jesus. We have Jesus appearing to Paul, who was persecuting Christians. We have Jesus appearing to the 500 that's recorded in 1 Corinthians 15. He appears to women. He appears to James, his brother, who did not believe during his lifetime, and he appears to the 12. And then finally, the apostles, who were the first eyewitnesses of this and record it, were all willing to suffer and willing to die for this conviction. Now that alone doesn't show that it's true, but it shows they really believed it. Friends, Jesus lived. He died on the cross. The tomb is empty. We have radical accounts of Jesus appearing to people. And then our first witnesses were willing to suffer and desire and refused to give up that belief, even though they were threatened with their very own lives, which we see in the beginning of Acts. For those reasons and many more, we have a good case to be made that Jesus really rose from the grave. big amen there to uh, Sean McDowell. Uh, wonderful, wonderful information he has on his YouTube channel uh, there at Sean McDowell. And so we do encourage you to go and check that out as well. Throwing a little uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean here as again as we're learning how I'm uh, learning how to uh, adjust this mixer and uh, it's coming all right along. So I want to thank the Lord for the opportunity to get this mixer and uh, want to also thank uh, uh, one, some some individuals who told me about this uh, about this uh, mixer and, and and several people. This, in fact, I have mentioned this before. Many individuals had uh, had asked, uh, "Are you are you good at this stuff? Are you good at podcasting?" And I tell them, "Well, <laughs> I'm only as good as the information I've been given, and and I've been uh, allowed to." Uh, uh, thankfully have uh, many individuals who have uh, helped me along and so uh, and so this this podcast is uh, uh, not not only my work but uh, the work of those who have been who have helped me and helped me right along Michael Bohm being one of those individuals and many many others we could mention uh, but uh, let's jump into this as we're talking about the resurrection today we're talking about reasons uh, why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus and I especially want to talk about this as it relates to, of course, many of you know my testimony, many of you know my story, as I had become a skeptic uh, many years ago, um, and and had become somewhat of a, not completely an agnostic, but, but towards uh, that... Uh, genre a theistic leaning uh, agnostic you know I, I believed uh, that it was possible for God to exist but I just didn't know if there was any good reason to believe that he def definitively did or that he was personal I guess you'd say and I didn't know if there was any reasons to um, accept Christianity or any one worldview for that matter as being true now 
I had mentioned on a previous podcast some reasons why I believe in the existence of God, and some of those things came by uh, that period of time uh, where I was um, led to a stronger faith by many individuals, William Lane Craig, Ravi Zacharias, uh, Lee Strobel, um, Josh McDowell, many, many others, and the list goes on and on. It really does. But I wanted, I, one of the big things uh, that where my doubts rose was more in the area, more in the avenue of historical apologetics. I was negatively impacted by uh, the Jesus Seminar. And I read, uh, they, had a, they had a book out uh, called The Five Gospels, and trying to, to, trying to um, determine what Jesus really said. And in this book, this Jesus Seminar, they had uh, color-coded the, the passages, the teachings of Jesus, and those teachings they believed to be most likely that of Jesus, they had uh, color-coded red. Those that were 75% likely, more likely than not to be that of Jesus's, uh, were color-coded in pink. Those that were um, unlikely that of Jesus, or maybe had a little bit of Jesus in it, but a little more of the writer's uh, opinion or writer's teaching than it did that of Jesus's uh, teaching was was color coded in gray, and the um, and the teachings that uh, had uh, basically nothing to do with with Jesus uh, Jesus's teachings and was just a complete fabrication uh, by the writer of the gospel was was color coded in black. And when I came across this information, especially around Easter, around this period of time. I had many questions, I had many doubts about whether or not I, we could know that Christianity was true. You know, and I actually went to some individuals, uh, some Christian leaders in that time, and this isn't to basic, this isn't to demerit. In fact, I've said this before, and some people have accused me of degrading pastors and degrading Christian leaders, and this that's not intended to do so, okay? But it is intended to mention the fact that I did go to many Christian teachers, many Christian leaders, asking them, what do I do with this information? How do I know that the Bible is true? Really wanting, to, wanting an answer. I didn't want to go down this pathway of doubt. But they could provide no reason whatsoever. It was circular argumentation. It was, well, you just believe the Bible because the Bible says so, and that's, that's all you need to know. Well, for from from my mind, and quite honestly, many individuals who suffer from doubt, which doubt isn't always a bad thing. I think doubt is a way is a means by which God brings us to a stronger faith. In, in reality, that's what happened with me. In fact, I would not be. I wouldn't. This podcast would not exist if it had not been for that period of doubt that I had that I endured that brought me to a stronger faith in Christ. Um, and having gone through that, you know, I understand the, 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 the problems of doubt. I understand the, the great depression that goes through times of doubt. And I understand that probably more than individuals who haven't gone through these seasons of doubt, which I believe there are those, I believe everybody probably does. I think there are just those who are more honest and upfront than, than there are others. But I came to, in, in July of 2005, I remember my, my wife and I, we were getting ready to go on vacation with some, some friends of ours, Jimmy and Sherry, Jimmy and Sherry Bowles. We were getting ready to go on vacation with them, and, and I encountered, in fact, I remember uh, going down the, this Haynes Mall Boulevard in Winston-Salem. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you've lived in the Winston-Salem area, you know what I'm talking about. But went down Haynes Mall Boulevard, and... I just had this overwhelming feeling that I needed to go to the, the, the Christian bookstore, the Lifeway Christian bookstore there on Haynes Mall Boulevard. And I did that. And when I went in, I had not been in a bookstore for five, seven years. And I went in there, and I didn't know what I was looking for. And the people up front, always they're always real nice and kind. They're saying, welcome to Lifeway, and anything we can help you with. I didn't know why I was in there. <laughs> but I go around a corner, and there it hits me. Right between the eyes, there's a book by the two books by Josh McDowell I picked up, and one by Lee Strobel called "The Case for Christ." I started off with "The Case for Christ." Actually, we did that one in a, in a ready defense by um, by Josh McDowell, which was a compilation book 
that had uh, uh, the evidence demands a verdict and, and, and some of his other works. It was a compilation work. And actually, that one was really, that one really got to me because I began to see certain things about the gospel, certain things about the New Testament that the Jesus Seminar did not tell. <laughs> they did not say. And I come to realize that there were really good reasons for believing in the historicity of Jesus and in and particularly believing in the historicity of Jesus' own resurrection on that first Easter Sunday. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead just as he said he was going to and is reported to us in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, then we have reason to believe that everything Jesus said and everything that Jesus did was true, verified who he was and whom he said he would he was. So I want to give you the top nine reasons, why, or nine reasons why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And I'll, I'll go, and I'm working on an article. I'm hoping to get this to the Christian Post here before too long. Um, I was hoping to get this done earlier in the week, and um, my mom, she, she's gone through a very intense surgery, so I didn't quite get it published as quickly as I hoped I would, but if nothing else, um, you know, I'll send it to them, and if, if, if it's too late for them to publish, I will definitely have it on the website at bellatorchristie.com, so, and, and it will go a little more detail what, than what this podcast will, but I want to take time to explain these reasons, these nine reasons, and in fact, there may be many more than I could add, but these are just the top general nine reasons why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and number nine is, is the transformed lives and practices of the disciples of the early church. I mean, these these were individuals who went from living lives of fear to to lives of boldness. These these were also individuals that were all brought up hardcore Jewish. Yet they also changed some of their practices, like they changed some of their dietary restrictions. You know, you just don't do that <laughs> if if you're if you're a person that loves God with all your heart and you're brought up in this certain fashion to to say that you know certain foods are are non-kosher and we're staying away from that and then all of a sudden you say have the freedom to eat these foods you know something must have brought about that transformation that change of heart that change of mind and you also have a, a change in the day of worship i mean one of the 10 commandments is to keep the sabbath day and you know keep it holy and there were all there were all these all of these uh, restrictions on how far you could walk and how far you could travel, how far you could do certain things. But how is it that they changed the day of worship from Saturday, which is the Sabbath, to Sunday, the the day of worship, uh, the day of the resurrection of Jesus? It was because of the resurrection of Jesus and the transformation that came about that that resurrection and the transformation they experienced through the through Pentecost and the and the Holy Spirit. Those are the things that transformed them, completely changing them from the people that they had been to this newfound movement that they were experiencing because of Christ and because of what He had done, because He had fulfilled the things he said he was going to do. And number eight, we see the, the evidence from prophecy. So you see transformed lives and practices, but you also see the evidence from prophecy. And, and this, in fact, all of these nine statements could themselves be individual podcasts themselves. And in fact, maybe one of these days we'll do, we'll do just that. Um, but number nine is we have substantial evidence from the Old Testament suggesting what the Messiah would be. Now, it is interesting, though, because these prophecies do not necessarily just jump off the page every time. Isaiah 53 is the exception. I think Isaiah 53 gives us a full, complete picture of who, of who the Messiah would be. I also think Zechariah gives us some, some good depictions of, of, who, of whom the Messiah would be, what the Messiah would do, and we see several different prophetic texts in Zechariah pointing towards the future work of the Messiah. Okay? So, but, but the thing about it is, is that many times you don't have these things that jump off the page at you. 
you know, talking about the Messiah. But when you look through the entirety of the Old Testament, there are these snapshots, there are these typologies that point towards what this Messiah would do. And, and it's not something that one would just automatically see. But as you study the Old Testament together, then you see this this portrayal of what the of who the Messiah would be, and that is why I think Jesus had to show the disciples throughout the text, throughout the scriptures, this description of the Messiah that was given throughout the scriptures. That's why Jesus even tells the religious leaders, "Search the scriptures." <laughs> Sorry, drop the drop the mic holder. <laughs> But search the scriptures, because in the scriptures you find this depiction of Jesus. And quite honestly, only Jesus fulfilled the degree of prophecy that he did. It's to the level and degree that if Jesus if Jesus is not the Messiah, then there won't be one. We're talking about a level of degree of certitude even found in the book of Daniel. Now, some people are critical of, of, of this very issue, but I want to tell you, I stand hardcore for the prophetic prophetic text talking about the Messiah, and I and I have to tell you today that Daniel, I think in 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 Daniel you see even this timeline in the seventy weeks prophecy showing when the Messiah would come. I mean, so you not only have depictions of who the Messiah would be, you even have a timeline in Daniel telling you when the Messiah would come, which corresponds to the time when Jesus did come, when he would be crucified, probably the time when he entered Jerusalem, you know, it, uh, on Palm Sunday. But, but that is completely um, incredible. You know, despite what you may do with the exact dating of the 70 weeks prophecy and how it's fulfilled by Jesus, the, the main point that you need to take from this is that only Jesus could fulfill the prophecies, and those that haven't been fulfilled will be fulfilled when he comes again. So I think that is strong evidence. And, and now you say, well, wait a minute, what does this have to do with the resurrection? Well, if you look at certain passages, especially in Isaiah 53, there is a strong indication in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would be resurrected. If you read Isaiah 53 closely, you'll look and see that he is he is definitely he's a suffering servant he's separated from the land but then god extends his days it's clear that this the suffering servant dies but god extends his days how does that happen well it happens by resurrection so the prophetic evidence is not only for the identity of the messiahship of or the messianic identity of Jesus but also for the resurrection of Jesus as well number 7 there's what's called the psychological factor and that is, the disciples knew whether or not they were telling the truth when they said they saw Jesus alive from the dead. They knew the truth about whether or not the tomb was found empty. Okay, now these were individuals who were persecuted for this thing that they were saying. Okay, now let's just, let's just now I have a son... And any of you who are parents, you're going to understand where I'm coming from here. If a child does something, I'm just going to use the example of brushing his teeth. For instance, my, my son doesn't like to brush his teeth for whatever reason. I don't know why. He just doesn't. It, but but we, we keep pressing upon him, you've got to brush your teeth. You, you have to brush your teeth. Well, in the mornings before I take him to school, I ask him, have you brushed your teeth? And he says, yes, Daddy. I said, uh, and, I, and I say, my son's name is Grayson. I said, Grayson, I said, are you sure you brushed your teeth? Yeah, Daddy. I said, okay, well, now if I go in there and I check your toothbrush and your toothbrush is dry and I figure out that you haven't brushed your teeth, you're going to lose your rights to technology. He has a tablet and, and, and probably more things than he needs. But but I tell him, well, when I when I give that, I said, listen, you know, you're going to be in trouble and you're going to lose privileges if I find out that you didn't brush your teeth. Well, guess what he does? He turns around and goes to the bathroom and says, well, I guess I need to brush my teeth. And, and his toothbrush was dry as a bone. Okay. The point is, is that is that anyone... If they know that they're telling a lie and they're they're going to be uh, charged with with um, you know um, charged with these issues that would eventually lead in death, 
then obviously someone's going to come. That person's going to come clean when they realize that hey, if I don't tell the truth here, I'm going to die, and I'm going to die not a very pleasant death, but I'm going to be eaten by wild animals. I'm going to be crucified. And we know that many now. First, Sean McDowell's done a great job in indicating the fact that there are some, some, some of the disciples we don't know what happened explicitly. What happened? Uh, but I do think there are reasons for believing that almost all the disciples died, martyred by as martyrs. Maybe not all, but most. Okay, we do know that that Paul and we do know that Peter. Uh, we have good reasons for believing that Thomas and Andrew and and many other of the disciples died as martyrs. Something happened to John. We're not a hundred percent sure what happened to John. If he didn't die as a martyr, it seems to be that he pastored the church in Ephesus. But even if he didn't die as a martyr, he he was persecuted greatly. But none of these individuals ever said, "Hey, yeah, we're lying." You know, you're talking about a bunch of people. Jesus had uh, 70-some disciples he sent out, preaching two by two, 70-72, depending on the translation. He had the 12 disciples. He had women disciples, female disciples. He had all of these individuals. I mean, there were numerous disciples, and no one ever recanted saying, yeah, we made this up. This isn't true. didn't happen. You would think someone somewhere would crack if if it were based upon a lie, but it didn't happen. In fact, the the story that Jesus resurrected not only held, but it also grew. And you know, let me just say here, and and, and I probably should add a tenth uh, thing, and I, and I probably should have done this. Let me also add this. I didn't add this to the list, but I guess um, the nine reasons are actually going to be ten reasons. I think. You also can say the, um, the the lack of any good alter alter alter, alter uh, I can't get words out alternative 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 <laughs> get this out in a minute alternative explanation all the other explanations fall apart the only thing that makes sense is that Jesus resurrected from the grave that he was that it happened exactly the way the Bible tells us. That's the only thing that holds. Number six, the sixth reason why I believe that the resurrection of Christ is true, as a true historical event, is that there really isn't any good motive for the disciples to make this up. And this actually came a little bit later on. J. Warner Wallace is a cold case detective, homicide detective. You, you may have seen him on Dateline NBC. I've had a chance to meet him at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics, which is a great conference if you have a chance to go check it out. Um... Anyhow, he uh, he has uh, he has written a book um, called Cold Case um, Christianity, and in that book he talks about that there are that there are three reasons why someone or a group would commit a conspiracy, why they would come up with some type of conspiracy. Three good reasons: one, sex; two, greed or or money, uh, the, the love of money; and three, power. Okay, that's why someone would make up something. These are the three primary motives that would that would make someone invent something to start a cause. Sex, greed, power. Well, let's observe the early church. What about sex? Well, when it comes to sex, the disciples, the earliest church taught celibacy before marriage and fidelity within marriage. <laughs> They taught that if you're not married, don't be having relations. Once you are married, you can have relations in in the marital confines of husband and wife, uh, but don't be cheating on your partner outside you know outside of that marriage. So that doesn't hold. Jesus was was uh, was the perfect gentleman. He, you know, he had women and and and, and people coming to him um, and wanting to be be his disciples. But there, but he taught the same thing. He said that if you have, hold lust in your heart, it's the same as committing adultery. Now that wouldn't have held, and that wouldn't have been passed along if Jesus was guilty of any uh, sexual. Uh, indiscretions or anything like that. I mean, the fact that this is passed on and he was held to be perfect shows the fact that he was perfect in his walk. The earliest church did not advocate sexual indiscretions. In fact, they taught celibacy before marriage and fidelity within marriage. Well, what about greed? Maybe they wanted a lot of money. Well, 
What did the early church teach? <laughs> and they taught to give away all your everything that you own to give to the poor and come follow Christ. Uh, they didn't talk about. In fact, Jesus even says, um, "You know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you." He's not. He even says, "You can't serve both God and mammon. You can't serve God and money." Is what that means. Uh, you know, I, I memorized a lot of things in the old King James English, and so that's where that some of that's coming from. Um, but but you you. You don't see that in the early church. And these were the teachings of Jesus preserved by the early church. You don't see that. Well, what about power? Maybe they just wanted to have power and control. What power? What control? You don't see it. You don't see that at all. In fact, in the early church, you see uh, Jesus teaching that the disciples that they were not to lord their authority over individuals. They, they were to lead by serving. In fact, Jesus, on the Thursday before he was uh, to be condemned, uh, the, the Thursday night leading up to his uh, to, to uh, the Friday execution on Good Friday, um, he, he washed the feet of his disciples, which you know he being the teacher assumed a role of a slave. Or a servant. Furthermore, what power did they have? You know, Paul, who was on the track of being the Pharisee of Pharisees, on going to the Sanhedrin, uh, living the good life, what well, he gave it up. Why? Because he saw the risen Jesus. It makes no sense. So there's no motive. There's sex. There's no sexual motive. There's no greed. There's no power motive. So it only stands to reason that they reported what they actually saw. And that is that Jesus was alive from the dead. I've got to move on. Actually, I'm noticing that we're running out of time. We're at the 30-minute mark, and uh, I need to be moving on. So, so I'm going to I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit more. And and um, by the way, there there are several resources on Bellator Christie that describe this in good detail. And uh, I'll mention that hopefully towards the end of the podcast if I don't forget. Number five, the minimal facts argument. Gary Habermas has promoted this, and he said this. The, there are five, or actually, you can say six minimal facts. I think you can add six. In fact, he even, in his book uh, Beyond uh, Death, also the case for the resurrection of Jesus and so, and the, in the uh, historical Jesus written by Gary Habermas. He's, he's written uh, a lot of great material. But there are five or six things that nearly all scholars will agree. One is, is still held by the consensus, but not uh, by the majority. Well, you, it's still held by the majority, I mean, but not as to the great degree that the other five are. I'm going to mention the first five first, and then the one that can also be added, but uh, and, and it's growing, it's gaining steam as we go along in historical studies. But number one, everyone agrees that Jesus was crucified. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. Jesus was crucified. Okay, number two, Jesus was thought to have been seen alive by his followers after his death. The earliest disciples believed that they had seen Jesus alive. And once you start, now you don't want to just stop with the minimal facts. You want this to lead you towards some other uh, facts about the resurrection. And I think once you, you travel a little farther in this investigation, you see that hallucinations could not have happened. They didn't show any signs of hallucinations. But, but let's just leave it here for right now. Jesus was, was thought to have been seen alive by his followers. Number three the, three, the disciples were transformed to the point that they were willing to die for their faith, for what they knew, know to have been true. Okay, This isn't the same as a Buddhist setting himself on fire. This is something they knew to be true, that they seen and they're testifying that they knew to be true or not. Number four, the resurrection was at the center of the apostolic preaching of the early church. Number five, you see the transformation of James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, who were both skeptics at one point in time, but they came to faith and, and, um, and started following the teachings of Jesus, started following Christ after the resurrection. And number six, the one that doesn't have as strong a hold as the other five, but is at least accepted by 75% or more of historical scholars, and that is that the tomb was found empty. I really don't know why that number is not higher, because I think that is just a, that is a, <laughs> I don't see how you argue that, because if, if a body was still in the tomb, then it would not make sense that Christianity is still here. I mean, to me, that's common sense, but, you know, whatever. We'll, we'll leave it there. But these are the minimal facts that the, the, the vast majority of scholars accept. 
liberal and conservative, they accept this. Number four, moving right along, there's also enemy attestation that we find. You not only see that Christians were writing about the um, the, uh, the the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, but you also see other individuals writing about the resurrection of Jesus. For instance, Je- Je- uh, Jewish historian Josephus, uh, writing in Antiquities 18.3, 18.3, around 90 A.D., uh, talking about that at this time there was Jesus a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was perhaps the Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them again alive the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct from this day. You also see, and this is not coming from a Christian, that came, quite honestly, from an enemy of the faith, uh, as Josephus was not a Christian. Ta- the Talmud uh, it talks about the, a tradition of uh, them hanging Yeshu, Jesus' Hebrew name would be Yeshua, uh, Yeshu on the Sabbath of the Passover, and for 40 days before, a herald went in in front of him. Uh, and so anyhow, you know, th- there are some distinctions there, but there is this acceptance that this Jesus was uh, crucified. They, they, they didn't speak favorable of him, but they did talk about him uh, dying by crucifixion. Mara Bar Serapion, who, who wrote around uh, 73 A.D., uh, a Syrian and Stoic philosopher wrote of the importance of uh, a person's pursuit of wisdom. In so doing, Serapion comes compares Jesus, the wise king, to uh, Socrates and Pythagoras. Uh, and so, um, and you can read that uh, actually if you go to an article. I wrote uh, called Examining Jesus by the Historical Method, Part 2, Enemy Enemy Attestation. You can read that in its entirety. Uh, Thallus from Julius Africanus's um, fragment, around around 52, uh, they're they're talking about what happened during the time of Christ, why there was a, whether or not it was an eclipse or what happened. Uh, The Acts of Pilate from Justin Martyr. Talking about piercing the hands and feet, and so that Jesus did die, you can see this. And so from this enemy attestation, you can see uh, that uh, Jesus existed. He was a teacher from Judea, that he was crucified by the, at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Darkness surrounded the area. Uh, he was crucified at the time of Passover, uh, that Jesus was buried, that he was believed to have been resurrected, and that Jesus' followers accepted suffering and death while still holding to the belief of Jesus' own resurrection. Resurrection, uh, and there are many, many others you can mention. Uh, Tacitus, uh, who was a Roman historian, uh, talks about this around 100 A.D. about this mischievous group of individuals he calls Christians, um, or well, who he calls, uh, whom he calls mischievous uh, instigators, and so he writes about this. So again. Uh, talking about them worshiping Jesus as if they were worshiping a god. So. This is not coming from Christian testimony. The the acceptance that Jesus was crucified, that he existed, was crucified, died, buried, and was reportedly to have been seen alive is evidence that something happened on Easter Sunday, and this isn't coming from Christian testimony. This is coming from enemy testimony. And I found that absolutely fascinating. And I thought, man, you know, Jesus' seminar never mentioned anything like that. You know, number three, there's also the, the issue of embarrassing details. You know, there are several, and, and quite honestly, here, here's another point where, you know, I, I'm going, just for the sake of time, I can't really go through all of the information that we could give here, but there are several points of embarrassment that we find in the story of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, well, not only that, but in the story of Jesus' crucifixion. I mean, for instance, in, in the resurrection, who were the first people to see Jesus alive from the dead? They were women. In fact, the very first woman to have encountered Jesus was a woman who may have had something in her past. We know that she was at one time at least demon-possessed, if nothing else. And that is uh, Mary Magdalene. She's the first person to have reportedly seen Jesus alive from the dead. So if you're choosing a person, 
If you're concocting a story and you're choosing a person to to be the first person to see Jesus from, from alive from the dead, you would not choose Mary Magdalene. <laughs> Mary got to love her to death, but but she was a faithful she was faithful to Jesus uh, to the very end. And by the way, that's another embarrassing factor. You see, you see. The fact is that the men reported that they reported. You hear the manly men, these fishermen. These are manly men. And what happened when Jesus was crucified? They all left and ran, except maybe John. Who was there faithfully by the side of Jesus? Well, it was the women. You wouldn't report that, especially. I mean, I don't think you would report that even now. If you're a manly man, and if you're if you're a man's man, you would report that now much less 2,000 years ago when times were definitely different than they are now. Why would you report women seeing, seeing Jesus alive first when the testimony of women were not held in high, as a high regard as they, as they are now? No offense to the ladies listening, but that's just the truth. And isn't that interesting, ladies, that Jesus chose to show appear first to the women? It's embarrassing. The fact that they were not even able to give him a proper burial is an embarrassing factor. And that the only one who was able to give him a proper burial was one jo- was uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a man from the very same Sanhedrin that had Jesus killed. <laughs> I don't think you would make that up. I just, I just don't. Also, we see that uh, number two is multiple manuscript evidence. Multiple manuscript evidence. And, and I, w- I want to tell you the evidence here is, is enormous. It is absolutely amazing, the evidence we have from multiple, multiple uh, avenues that we have of you know for for Jesus's resurrection, uh, you know, and so we see the evidence, early testimony, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Doctor Leo Purser says he thinks Matthew's written even earlier than Mark. This would at least put well. Let me just say this: I think you can at least make a strong case. Well, let me just say this first: I think you can make a strong case. And, I, and I'm having to limit this down quite a bit because we're running out of time. Um, you can make a strong case that uh, that all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were all three written well before 64 AD. And by the way, the fact that there is this new fragment, if it holds, which has not been verified yet, if this fragment of Mark holds that's been found, they think that dates to within uh, 80 to 110 AD, that would push the, the writing of Mark's gospel back to 40 A.D., which makes it even earlier, which we'll talk about that in a moment. But you have Matthew's gospel, the testimony in Matthew. You have the testimony of Mark, which Matthew, um, excuse Mark is recording the testimony of Simon Peter. Okay, You also have the testimony in Luke. You have the testimony in John. You have the testimony that's shared by Matthew and Luke. Uh, you have uh, also these creeds, hymns, non-Christian sources. Uh, you know, We've mentioned that a while ago. You also have this Christian source, Clement of Rome, not even counting the, the thousands upon thousands of references that we have about Jesus in the early church fathers. I mean, it's to the level and degree that you could even reconstruct certain books of the Bible. You you could you could know what was in the New Testament. I don't know how to to what level and degree. There's some debate about how much you can reconstruct from the early church fathers. But I will say this: you could know the essence of the gospel in the New Testament. I think it's safe to say you could know the essence of what was in the New Testament by the by the quotations found in the early church fathers alone. And that is absolutely amazing. And so we've looked at, actually this become 10, and, and so uh, <laughs> this, this became 10. But um, now it's time to look at the number one reason why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And, drum roll please. And the number one reason is early testimony. Early testimony. You know, 
a lot of times, and, and this was the problem that uh, Jesus Seminar had, they were trying to say that the testimony we have about Jesus is, is too late to have been true, that it must have been legendary material. But what I found, what I discovered was absolutely fascinating, especially through the work of Gary Habermas, that throughout the New Testament we have early testimony, pre-New Testament writings found in the New Testament. There are certain formulations that show us that the writers are recording something that predated them. For instance, Paul records this formulation in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 that dates to within months to at least three years after the resurrection of Jesus. You see another one in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26, this, uh, this, this uh, pre-formulation, if you want to call it that, Acts 2, 22-36, Romans 4, 25, Romans 10, 9, uh, which is an ancient um, confessional, Philippians 2, 8 and following, Colossians, I believe, 1. In, in Philippians, there's a hymn that is, uh, that is, uh, that is a pre-New Testament or a pre-early um, early hymn. In Colossians, you find an, an early uh, formulation. 1 Timothy 2, 6, you find this. 1 Peter 3, 18, you find an early Christian formulation. Again, we mentioned that there's a good, strong reason for believing that all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written before 64 AD because of the book of Acts. Um, you have you have amounting evidence that seems to suggest that uh, Mark may have been written within ten years of Jesus's ministry. The epistles, even that of James, is written in the forties, and and all of this together shows that what we find in the resurrection of Jesus is not legendary material, but in fact testimony of a, a of a early historical event that took place. So, friend, we could talk much more. We could even talk about the Shroud of Turin. We could talk about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. We could talk more. But, folks, these ten reasons alone, if you take these these nine, ten reasons we've given, and there are many other things we can say, and you just research that, friend, you have a good, strong reason for believing that the resurrection of Jesus is not some fancy fairy tale. It is truth. And that is a truth that will set all of us free. So this Easter rests in the assurance that Jesus' resurrection is a historical event and it's absolutely true. This has been Brian Chilton saying God bless, happy Easter, and we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas right here on the Bellator Christie Podcast. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of BellatorChristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi Podcast is a production of BellatorChristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit BellatorChristi.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas. You're going to change this world for Christ. Don't look around and wonder who it is. Say, God, make it me. Make it me. Because we're training champions. That's a part of the vision. Write the vision. Make it plain. We're training champions to change the world. That vision of training champions for Christ to change the world is the foundation of Liberty University. It always has been, and it always will be. Everything we are today is built upon it. But while our vision hasn't changed since 1971, the world around us has. Fewer and fewer people understand what we mean when we say train champions for Christ. So we show them. 
we show them what authentic faith in Christ looks like through the lens of academics, athletics, through the way we have fun and the way we serve one another and the world. We show them that we the faithful, the bold, the united, and the brave are also we the creators, the innovators, the entrepreneurs, and the leaders. We the champions are committed to tackling the issues of our time with integrity and prayer. Our vision hasn't changed. It is strengthened, broadened, expanded. It has grown into over 550 programs of study, reaching into over 80 countries, uniting over 100,000 students into a beautifully diverse family with a singular vision. We the champions, in order to affirm our tradition of unwavering faith, ignite a passion for wisdom, challenge perspectives, inspire creativity, and pursue knowledge. Do resolve to be the voice for the voiceless, bring healing to the hurting, fight for the oppressed, defend freedom, defy stereotypes, and follow God's calling wherever it may lead. To find out more about Liberty University, go to liberty.edu. Who is God? What is He like? How can we know? The answers you give to these questions will have a tremendous impact on your worship, discipleship, apologetics, and evangelism. Faulty ideas about God are permeating both the church and the culture. It's time to get back to the basics of understanding the existence and nature of the God who is. Marking the 25th year of this annual event, Southern Evangelical Seminary's National Conference on Christian Apologetics returns to Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, with an all-star lineup of some of the finest Christian minds in the world to explore this incredibly important topic. Join us October 12th through 13th, 2018 at Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Among the 65 speakers at the event include Ravi Zacharias of RZIM, Josh McDowell of Josh McDowell Ministries, Chip Ingram of Living on the Edge, Gary Habermas of Liberty University, Natasha Crane, Richard Land, and many, many more. Ticket prices before August 1st are $75 for adults, $45 for students. After August 1st, the tickets go up to $85 for adults and $55 for regular price. Save an extra 5% per ticket when you register by May 1st. Group, homeschool, Christian school, and skeptic discounts are available. Call for details by dialing 1-800-77-TRUTH, extension 201. Once again, that's 1-800-77-TRUTH, extension 201. Or go to conference.ses.edu. The 25th anniversary of the National Conference on Christian Apologetics will be October 12th and 13th at Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hope to see you there.